greatest uh, compliment a, a pastor can ever receive is uh, when another pastor says to that pastor, uh, I wish you were my pastor. And I feel that way about Edwin. I wish that he was my pastor. Uh, fortunately, he is your pastor. And uh, I want you to know uh, that I have such a profound respect for him. I also have a profound respect for uh, this ministry and this church as well. Uh, not only for the work that you do, but for the people that you are. Uh, I've had a chance to uh, watch some of the prayer meetings that take place uh, on, uh, on Facebook. And um, one of the first thoughts that entered into my mind as I heard um, the people in this community praying uh, in the morning and in the evening was that I don't know God the way that the people at Recovery House of Worship do when I hear them pray. And I was truly inspired and, and challenged in my own faith journey as well. So I want to thank you for that. So it's, it's a tremendous honor uh, and privilege for me to be here with all of you today. Um, just a little bit about myself. Uh, I, I have been married for eight years. Uh, and uh, during our honeymoon, my wife and I, we went to Greece and to Turkey. Uh, Greece was a little bit more for her. Turkey was a little bit more for me. And the reason why I wanted to go to Turkey is because, I don't know if you knew this or not, but 90% of what takes place in the New Testament actually takes place in modern-day Turkey, including the opening pages of Revelation where Jesus writes a letter to seven different churches in seven different cities in Turkey. So I want to pull up a map of uh, Turkey, if we can. So these are the, the seven different cities and the seven different churches that are located in each of these cities. Now, if you were to go to modern-day Turkey today, what you would see in some of these cities are some pillars and some columns that have fallen over. But in some of these other cities, like Ephesus, where we get the letter to the Ephesians, Laodicea, and Pergamum, which we're going to be taking a look at today, you'll see more than just columns and pillars that have fallen over. You'll see much of the city still preserved to this day. So if we take, up, uh, take a look at the next image, this is the city of Pergamum that you will see today. So you'll see the 10,000-seat amphitheater and, and the different columns and the, the different pillars that are still erected today. So why, why am I taking this time to do this brief history lesson before we, we dive into the Bible today? The reason why I want to do this is because I want you to know that when you take a look at ancient fiction... Ancient fiction has imaginary places, imaginary people. But when you read ancient nonfiction, what you'll see is real places, real people. So when you read the Bible, there's no mention of Narnia. There's no mention of Asgard or Arendelle or Middle Earth or the Shire. Uh, and so when we approach the Bible then, we don't approach it the same way we approach Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Rather, when we approach the Bible, we approach it like real history. Now, we can debate whether the Bible is historically accurate or not, 
But at the very least, we don't approach it like fiction, but we approach it like real history. Okay. And so the game plan for today is this. I want to take a look at one of the letters that Jesus writes to one of the churches, and that is to the church in Pergamum. And as we read this letter and sort of uh, dissect it apart, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying to this particular church. And as we hear what Jesus is saying to this particular church, I also want you to think about this question. Is what Jesus is saying to this church, could it be potentially something that he might say to our church? Could it be something that he might potentially say to even me? So I want to take a look at uh, the next verses, actually, if, they're, uh, if we can post it up. Here we go. So it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So let's just stop there for a moment. Take, take a look at verse 12 where it talks about this sharp double-edged sword. There you see it in bold. And then you'll see Satan's throne. So just think about these concepts for a moment, the idea of a sword and the idea of a throne. Both of these images symbolize authority. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I have authority, but in your city, Satan has authority. And the reason why Jesus is saying that is because when you take a look at the ancient city of Pergamum, it was a city that was filled with idols all across uh, their city. One of the idols that was erected at the very top of the mountain was a temple that was dedicated to the emperor Trajan. And there they would worship and give sacrifices to this politician. Now, when we hear the phrase emperor worship, that might not resonate with us as Americans. But I do want to remind us of the politically tumultuous year that we just had. Couldn't you make a case that in America we have elevated politics up to a religion? Couldn't you make a case that in America we have millions of devoted disciples and followers to a particular party? Can you make a case that in America, there are millions of people that look to our politicians as our lords and our saviors as well? So much so that we will do anything for them, even raid the capital. So the idea of politics as a religion is actually not that foreign to us either. And so one of the pictures that you'll see, uh, 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 if we can go back to... Uh, one of the images, there we go. So if you take a look at the structure on the left, that's where uh, you'll see some of the columns that are built up. That's where the uh, temple to Trajan was dedicated. And so that could be potentially Satan's throne that Jesus is talking about, or he could be talking about something else. And so I wanna show you a nine second animation that's pretty cool of the ancient city of Pergamon, what it probably looked like before it became rubbles. And as we take a look at this uh, animation, I want you to focus on the structure to the right.
Okay. So keep looking. So there's a 10,000 seat amphitheater that's there. Now focus to the right side of the 10,000 seat amphitheater. You see a little structure there. If we can stop it right there, that structure to the right of the 10,000 seat amphitheater is the temple that was dedicated to Zeus. So this could also be what uh, Jesus might be referring to as Satan's throne, because who is Zeus? Zeus was the king of all the gods, right? Who is Satan? He's the prince of all evil, right? So it could be also this that uh, Jesus is referring to. Now, now, when we hear all this stuff about like temples and, 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 a, and a temple dedicated to Zeus, again, it doesn't resonate with us. But I do also want us to know that there are idols that are in our city too. Take a look just down the street at the Barclays Center. What is that other than a temple where thousands of people go in their priestly garments, Nets uniforms, and Nets jerseys, or, or, or where our church is, Nick's uniforms, Nick's jerseys, and what do they do? They sacrifice their time, their money, and if their God or their team wins, they're happy. If their God or team loses, they're sad. Right? Go to Times Square where you see icons and images everywhere of the perfect body or the clothes that you should wear or the gadgets you should buy to feel like a somebody instead of a nobody. And if you bow down to these things, if you buy these things, sacrifice to these things, then you'll have a sense of dignity, value, and self-worth. Right? So the idea of idols and temples actually is not that foreign to us. But I don't want to just talk about the idols that are in our city. I also want to talk about the idols that are in our hearts. Okay. So what exactly is an idol? I like this quote from Nicholas McDonald, if we can pull that up, and he says this. Hello, I am an idol. Don't be afraid. It's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I am never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. So an idol is anything other than God that we lock our hearts onto, that we attach our hearts onto to give us happiness, meaning, freedom, freedom and a sense of uh, self-worth. The only problem is that when we lock our hearts onto something other than God, what ends up happening is the exact opposite. And the reason for that is because our hearts are infinite. And so when we're constantly grabbing finite things, 
to fill an infinite heart, it's not going to work. It's going to satiate us for a little bit, but then we're going to feel empty inside again. So if you look at the next quote from uh, Selena Gomez, she says, I had everything and I was absolutely broken inside. Why do we always hear narratives like this? Michael Phelps, after he wins uh, a bunch of medals in the 2008 Beijing Olympics, Tom Brady. Why do we always hear this narrative over and over again where someone has everything and yet they feel broken inside? It's because our hearts are infinite. Constantly locking our hearts to finite things, but it doesn't fill us the way that we need. You know what's so admirable, however, about the church in Pergamum? Even though the Pergamum was a city that was filled with idols, this church was fiercely loyal to Jesus. How do we know that? Take a look at uh, the next verses with me. So verse 13 says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So notice what this verse is saying. They did not renounce their faith, just like in the days of Antipas. So who is Antipas? There's not a lot that we know about Antipas, but according to church tradition, Antipas did not bow down to the emperor Trajan. As a result of that, he was put to death. And the way they they put to death Antipas was that they took a life-size statue of a cow that was made of bronze. They put Antipas inside of the cow and closed the lid and put a fire underneath that bronze cow so that Antipas roasted to death. According to church tradition, the acoustics of the bull were made in such a way that when a person was screaming out in agony, the sound that came out of the bull was like the snorting of a bull. This was one of the worst and most demonic and evil ways of dying next to a crucifixion. And yet Antipas did not renounce his faith. He was fiercely loyal to Jesus. And similarly to Antipas, this church in Pergamum, they were fiercely loyal to Jesus even unto death. So the question is this, what's the problem here then? What what other metric do you need for loyalty and faithfulness than someone willing to die for you? Why is Jesus writing this letter to this church when at any moment they would give up their life for him? Well, take a look with me at the next verses. And this is what it says, nevertheless. And usually what follows nevertheless is something that you have to brace yourself for. And Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So take a look with me at these verses again. And Jesus is saying that he has a few things against them. Just think about that for a moment. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's easier to die for something than it is to live for something? And the truth of the matter is, it's not easy to die for something. It is hard. 
But you know what's also hard? Living for something, day after day after day. So I, I'm a, a proud girl dad. I have two girls that are five and three. I would die for them at any moment. But you know what's really, really hard? Living for them moment by moment. Taking them potty at 2 AM again. Um, brushing their teeth, bathing them, feeding them, clothing them, another tea party. Over and over and over again. I would die for them at any moment. But what's really hard is living for them moment by moment. And what Jesus is saying to this church is this, I know that you would die for me. But are you willing to live for me? On a regular Sunday morning, on a regular Wednesday afternoon, on a Friday evening, on a Saturday night. So Jesus writes this letter because what they are doing is that they're willing to give up their lives, but they're not as willing to live for them. And when we take a look at this verse, one of the reasons for that is because they hold to mixed teachings. So on the one hand, they hold to the teachings of Jesus. They'll die for Jesus. They'll, they'll live for Jesus. But on the other hand, they also hold to the teachings of Balaam and to the teachings of the Nicolaitans as well. And a part of the reason why we live so inconsistently on a day-by-day -day basis is because we have these multiple beliefs, hybrid beliefs, mixed beliefs. And the reason why I say this is so important is because what we believe shapes how we behave. So when we have mixed beliefs, then naturally, there's going to be mixed kinds of behavior. And when you take a look at this church, again, they believed in Jesus. They were willing to die for Jesus. They embraced his teachings, but they also embraced the teachings of the Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam as, uh, as well. And I want to ask us uh, this morning, could it be possible for you that you believe in God uh, you'll die for God. You embrace the teachings, but is it possible that you also hold to mixed beliefs and values as well? Keep in mind that this letter was not written to a group of skeptics, but this letter was written to a church. So let's parse this out. What exactly were, were the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the, the, the Nicolaitans? And before I actually jump into that, uh, I want to just hit the pause button real quick. Because the letter of Revelation can oftentimes be very mysterious, intimidating, it's apocalyptic, we have no, all these symbols and icons. But take a guess, what book in the New Testament references the Old Testament the most? You would think it's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You might think it's the book of Romans, which is a theological treatise that references the Old Testament the most. But the New Testament book that references the old the most is actually the book of Revelation. And so in many ways, Revelation is a representation of the Old Testament. So it's, in some ways, it is saying new, something new, but it's also mostly talking about stuff that's old. And similarly, we don't know a lot about the teachings of the Nicolaitans, but we do know a lot about the teachings of Balaam. And it's found in the Old Testament book of Numbers 22 to 25. So I want you to imagine for a moment that this side of the room, you are the bad guys, you're the Moabites. This side of the room, you're the good guys, you're the Israelites. 
Okay? So the Moabites are greatly intimidated by all these Israelites. The king of Moab, named Balak, feels insecure because there's literally a million Israelites that have just left Egypt, and he's hearing all these stories about how God is delivering them over and over again, giving them victory. And so King Balak of the Moabites hires a prophet named Balaam, and he gives Balaam all this money, and he says, I want you to place a hex or a curse on these people. And so Balaam says, very well. So, but he says, I can only say what God wants me to say. He goes up to God, and so he says, God, can you place a hex or a curse on these people? And God says, no, I can't. These are my people. I actually want you to bless them. So Balaam, instead of cursing them, he actually blesses them. So he goes back to King Balak, and Balak is like, what are you doing? I just gave you all this money to curse them. Why are you blessing them? Go back up to your God and try cursing them again. So he goes up to God, and God's like, I don't want you to curse them. I want you to bless them. So he blesses them again. King Balak is like, what are you doing? And so he says, try it a third time. So Balaam goes up to God, and God says, I don't want you to curse them. I want you to bless them. So he blesses them a third time. And eventually, King Balak says, this is insanity. We can't keep doing this over and over again. And so, King, uh, so the prophet Balaam, having this idea, says, says this, let's rethink things, okay? We can't keep doing this. But how about we try this? Rather than attacking them from the outside, let's attack them from the inside. Rather than going through the front door, let's go through the back door. Rather than us killing them, let's have them kill themselves. And the way that we're going to do this is by having them believe mixed teachings. And so one of the things that they did was that they changed their understanding of biblical sexual ethics and they replaced it with Moabite sexual ethics. And as a result of that, the Israelites fell. You know, when, when you think about a ship, a ship doesn't sink because it's surrounded by water. Okay? A ship doesn't sink because it lives in the water. A ship only sinks when the water lives in it. Similarly, a church or a person, they don't sink because they live in a secular culture. A church or a person sinks when the secular culture lives in them. And that's what was taking place here. They believed in God. They were willing to die for God. They embraced his teachings, but they also embraced the teachings of their culture uh, as well. Now, the question is this. Why do we do that? Why do we hold these hybrid beliefs? I think a part of the reason why we hold these mixed beliefs is because we think this is the pathway that will ultimately make us happy. So stick with me with um, sexual ethics for a second because that's what our text is talking about. Biblical sexual ethics today are seen as socially regressive. It goes, goes against the tide of popular opinion. You risk cultural marginalization. You also risk the loss of some friends in your life. So why in the world would we uh, you know, maintain a, a biblical position on sexual ethics when it costs us so much? So here's what we do. I'll believe in God. I'll die for God. I'll believe in God about this, this, and this. But with regards to this, I'll just hold to that one there. That way, I don't have to risk social cost, social marginalization, or be seen as kind of weird. 
And so that's what we, we, we pick our theology a la carte, and as a result of that, there are tensions that take place. But again, I want to remind you what happened to the Israelites because of their mixed beliefs. They fell. And to a certain degree, uh, when we hold these mixed beliefs, it might not cost us our lives, although it, at times it can. But at the very least, it can cost us our relationship with God. It can cost us our character. It can cost us our relationship with the church. There are also sacrifices and costs that take place when we hold to these mixed teachings uh, as well, instead of being devoted to uh, the teachings of Scripture and Scripture alone. So here's the question for us. Where is our hope? Okay, we are all walking contradictions here. Okay, none of us have perfect beliefs. All of our beliefs are tainted and influenced by our peers, our culture, our city. And if what we believe shapes the way we behave, none of us behaves the way that we ought to. So where is our hope? Because I am afraid that if God were to, Jesus were to write a letter to us as well, he might say to us, church, I have a few things against you as well. So take a look with me at the last verses uh, of our passage. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a name, new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. So take a look at the underlying phrases that are there, manna and this white stone with a new name. Okay, how are we to interpret this? The same way we interpret the teachings of Balaam. Again, Revelation constantly is pointing back to the Old Testament. And even if you've never gone to church before, you have heard of the story of the Israelites leaving uh, Egypt in this great exodus. And what does God provide for them during that exodus? Manna. You know what manna means in Hebrew? What is this? Which is why when I was younger, I always used to think that manna was spam. Because I was like, what, what is this? What am, I, what am I eating? But that's, that's what it means. But he provides manna for them in the desert. And when you, read, when you read the Old Testament, one of the interesting things about manna is that it had a 24-hour expiration date. But what's interesting is that God tells Moses to take a jar and fill it with manna because this manna does not expire. It is living. It is eternal. And he says, take that jar of manna and place it all the way in the back of the tabernacle. Now, what is a tabernacle? Think of a temple as something big and stationary and movable. Think of a tabernacle as a temple on wheels. It's a tent. It is movable. So the tabernacle was going with the people of God wherever they went. And he told Moses to put the jar of manna all the way in the back so that it was hidden from the people, save for one person, a high priest. The high priest was representative of the people. He was bone of their bones. He was flesh of their flesh. He represented the people. And what the high priest would do once a year is that he would wash himself clean, and then he would put on these priestly garments, and then he would put on a breastplate with 12 stones on it, representing the tribes of Israel. In other words, the high priest wore over his heart the names of God's people. And what he would do is that he would take an animal and he would lay his hands on the animal and he would confess all of his sins. 
and transfer it to the animal. Then he would take the sins of the million people and he would confess their sins and transfer it to the animal. And then after he transferred it to the animal, he would kill the animal, symbolizing the justice and the judgment we all deserve for our sins, our evil, and our imperfections. He would take that blood and then he would go into the tabernacle where that hidden manna was and he would atone for the people's sins. What is this, allusion, what is this alluding to? What is this a picture of? It's a picture of none other than Jesus himself who is our great high priest, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bones, representing our people. And on the cross, he wore the names of us your name on the cross, and he died for you, except he did not sacrifice an animal, but he sacrificed himself. This is how we become victorious. This is how we become clean. Let me give you an example of how this exactly works. I want you to imagine that there's a piece of paper. At the very top of the piece of paper is your name. Underneath this piece of paper, is a list of all the wrong things you did not do this week, but your whole life. That attitude of superiority you had when you got defensive with your spouse, that look that you gave, the thing that you stole, the, thought, the thoughts that you have, the way that you act. How long do you think these pages would be? Your whole life. Ten pages? A thousand? A million, depending on the size of the font? How long do you think this would be? Now I want you to imagine another piece of paper with Jesus' name on it. And under his name is a list of all the wrong things that he has done in his life. But when you take a look at this paper, it is totally, totally blank. Because he lived a perfect life. And so what Jesus does on the cross is that he takes a look at this book that is your life. And he erases your name at the top. And he curiously writes his name as if he had done those things. And then he erases his name at the top of his paper. And then he writes your name. So that your life, it is as though you lived absolutely sinless. But he does something more than just that. Underneath your name on this new paper, he begins to write, always loved my neighbor, was always kind, was always compassionate, was always, and he begins to write all the good things that he had done as if you had done those things so that you are not only forgiven, but you are absolutely righteous and holy. Where is our victory come from when Jesus says, I have some things against you? Our hope is in the cross. And the reason why Jesus does not have things against us is because on the cross, Jesus paid the judgment that we deserved. He lived for us, he died for us, and he continues to live for us to this day, interceding on our behalf. Now here's the question. If Jesus continually lives for us, even to this day, how can we not live for him? And I think the way that we live for him is by thinking about our belief systems. Because again, what we believe shapes the way we behave. 
So here are some action items as we close. How can I have better belief systems so my, my beliefs aren't mixed and corrupted by what our, our, our culture says? I think one is just show up on Sundays. You'll hear a much better sermon next week by Pastor Edwin. So come back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I know Pastor Gus does a men's ministry. I know that there's a women's ministry. I know Betsy does a lot with Christian education here. Go to those classes. Keep, keep sharpening and renewing your mind because the Bible is a thick book. I know that you believe in God, but do you believe also in what he believes? Now you might be thinking, what does God believe in? A lot of things. That's why the Bible is such a thick book. But think about ethics just for an example. Our character, humility, generosity, the pursuit of justice and mercy, loving our neighbor, being a good spouse, being a, being a good friend. I mean, the list goes on. And there are a lot of things that God believes in. So it's not enough just to believe in him. But we also need to believe in the things that he believes in as well. And you have a great staff, uh, great teachers, and a great church that can help you on this faith journey that you have. Let's pray together. Father, in so many ways, uh, it can feel like it is easier to die for you than it is to live for you in a consistent way. Our sinful nature is so, so strong that every morning we wake up, we wake up back to a default position where we are almost enemies with you. But remind us of the gospel. Remind us to look up. Remind us that you live for us and that we are called to live for you on an ordinary Sunday morning, on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. God, may our beliefs continually be shaped by your word. And as we, as we you know, work on the things that we believe in, may it shape the way that we behave and reflect more and more of you.